We are Irresistible. A community of practice in collective healing and social change. Because our commitment to justice and to our own lives is compelling, joyful, and irresistible. Together, we celebrate the many traditions of movement leaders, cultural workers, and spiritual teachers who remind us to embody the liberation we are pursuing and who show us that our movements for justice can and must be expansive, vibrant, and alive. Because we are so much more than resistance. We are irresistible. Welcome. Hey everybody, it's BJ Starr, your new co-director at Irresistible. Some of you may know me from the Irresistible Care Circles, and if you haven't already, I invite you to listen to a few episodes back where Kate and I announce our new co-directorship and dive into the stories that led us to this new and exciting chapter. And to kick off this new chapter, I'm leading my very first conversation on the podcast today. And I've got to tell you, the timing of this conversation could not be better because today's guest, Lama Rod Owens, and the book Love and Rage are at the heart of the work that I think is important in our communities and in our lives right now and personally in my own life. So this as a kickoff conversation honestly could not be better. Um, So I want to tell you a little bit more about Lama Rod Owens and his new book, Love and Rage, The Path to Liberation Through Anger. It's actually going to be our Irresistible Book Club selection this summer. And we're going to have the honor of having this conversation today with Lamarad, and then a practice episode where we'll all get an opportunity to experience an exercise. That'll be next week. And then for the summer, we'll be reading together, sharing a discussion guide to help us process the book. And at the end, having a live discussion with Lamarad to kick off uh, the, the end of the summer. So for more about book club, please visit irresistible.org slash book club. Lama Rod Owens is an author, activist, and authorized Lama Buddhist teacher in the Kagyu school of Tibetan Buddhism, and is considered one of the leaders of his generation of Buddhist teachers. Holding a Master of Divinity degree in Buddhist studies from Harvard Divinity School, Owens is also co-author of Radical Dharma, Talking Race, Love, and Liberation, and co-founder of Bhumis Parsha, a Buddhist tantric practice and study community. I'm very excited to introduce you to Lamarad today, and I invite you to say a little bit more about who you are and introduce yourself to the community. Oh, awesome. It is really an honor to be here to be sharing this conversation and dialogue um, with um, UBJ and the collective. Um, and I hope that um, this can be something really ben- beneficial for everyone as we're moving through these really tricky times. Um, so a little bit about me. I am currently um, sheltering um, on the land of the Wampanoag and the Massachusetts people um, once, you know, settled and called Boston, also known as Shamut. 
by the community, by the indigenous ancestral community here. Um, I'm originally from Georgia, North Georgia. Uh, and near, you know, one of the staging sites for the Trail of Tears. So I grew up in, you know, a small black community in North Georgia. I grew up in the church. Uh, my mother um, is a United Methodist minister, and she became a minister when I was about 13. And that was something that really deeply influenced um, everything for me you know, to see, um, well, to, to have a, a black mother as a religious leader, as a spiritual leader, really began to set the tone for what I would later emerge into. Um, but at the time, I was really much more influenced by, you know, black political radical thoughts, you know, so Malcolm X and, mm -hmm. um, you know, and the, the Panthers, the Black Panthers. Mm -hmm. Um, the Haitian Revolution, those were the things that I loved to study in my teens, moving through my late teens, you know, really getting into service, activism, advocacy work. Mm -hmm. um, in my college years, really getting into, you know, sexual assault advocacy work, um, HIV, AIDS, education, awareness, working with folks, experiencing homelessness, um, getting into food justice. Um, work as well. And food justice actually led me into post-graduation joining um, the Catholic worker movement, mm -hmm. you know, and coming to Boston um, and joining an intentional community. Um, and our, you know, our work in the community was to disrupt systems of violence, really, you know, um, to disrupt militarism, capitalism, um, neoliberalism, you know, all of these things, you know, um, and to disrupt the causes and conditions of poverty, uh -huh. you know, and we organized around those issues and we also um, organized, you know, actual services so people, you know, could get fed, could find housing, could get access to medical care um, and job training uh -huh. as well. Um, and that, that really formed my relationship to the integration of spirituality and justice, mm. you know, because it was a faith community, mm -hmm. but we were all of different faiths. Mm. And that was so deeply, deeply influential. It was such a beautiful time for me as someone coming from like rural North Georgia to Boston and just being in a community where there were nuns and monks and Buddhists uh, and drug dealers and sex workers um, and, you know, people who ex experience incarceration, you know, and like people coming from money and privilege and wealth and politicians, wow. And, you know, wow. like everyone working together, you know, not just the community we were serving, but these were all these people, we were working together. Like we had all come together to do this work. Mm -hmm you know, to, to, to help others who were experiencing things, you know, that maybe many of us had survived and we wanted to give back. And that was just so, I mean, I can't imagine my life without having had that experience, Yeah, you know, absolutely. but it was also really important because that's how I got introduced to Buddhism uh -huh. as well and meditation, uh -huh. you know, so I had fell into a really intense depression, you know, and 
through the help of my community, I was able to really start practicing. I was able to get into mental health, you know, get mental health resources. And that really just started this path, you know, that has led to the work that I'm doing now. Mm. I'd love to to ask you about that because um, I've, I've gotten a chance to preview the book a bit and I've been following you in, on social media as well. And I've noticed you talk about both social liberation and um, like personal liberation. Yes. And um, I wonder if you can describe those two things a little bit more to us, because it sounds like that point in your life was in that path opened up in, in both those directions. Exactly. Exactly. That was the point where I realized I was really fucking tired <laughs> of the suffering of life. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the that was the selling point that helped me move into to Buddhism, you know, into Dharma, which is what I usually call it, you know, which Dharma means the teachings of the Buddha or, you know, or just teachings in general. You know, I was just like, yeah, I need to be free right now as I'm also working to get free, which was very complex. Yeah you know, to wrap my mind around. But I knew, you know, that I could experience a kind of spaciousness in my mind as I move through the world trying to disrupt systems, Yeah. you know, of violence, yeah. you know, and marginalization and oppression. And so when I talk about freedom, I'm talking, you know, alt- when I talk about ultimate personal freedom, I'm talking about freedom from duality, I'm talking about freedom from the sense of self and ego. And I'm not talking about the eradication of ego or a sense of self. I'm talking about, I want to have space around the sense of self, mm-hmm. right? So I begin to see the illusion of self, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, the self is still important for me. Mm-hmm. It's critical. You know, that's the only way I can be in the world as an agent of support for folks. You know, I have to have a, a relationship to self. You know, self is how we communicate with others, right? Mm -hmm. But I can also have a lot of space around the sense of self and understand that, like, yes, at the end of the day, this the sense of self is still just an experience. Yeah. Not something that's real and solid and permanent, you know, that can't be changed Mm. and shifted, Mm -hmm. you know. So when I understand that, that that's my personal ultimate liberation, right? When I talk about like the social liberation, the collective liberation, I'm really, I'm talking about, I want to live in a world and have a life where I'm free from systems of violence, where I'm free to determine the course of my life, you know, where I'm free to be my absolute most authentic self, as long as that authentic self isn't creating violence for myself or for others, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and I want, I can have both. You know, it, it, you know, it seems as if I'm getting closer to this personal ultimate liberation, you know, a little quicker (laughs) (laughs) than the social liberation piece. But that's, that's also what is supposed to happen, because there are people who need to be close to this ultimate freedom in order to come back to show us how to do the work on the ground. You know, yeah, I hear that. Well, I'm curious, too, because with I, I also have um um, a family uh, that was like deep in the church. I grew up um, in a Baptist church and then t- eventually moved into a larger non-denominational kind of like mega church. Oh, huh. And um, 
in some ways, I, I consider myself a recovering Christian. Like there, there are a lot of things that I'm still unlearning that I learned um, back then. But there are a lot of things that I've kept that um, that stay with me. And there's there is always something about love and compassion that was at the heart of the teachings in the churches that I was in. And so when I've when I've shifted towards uh, social liberation, I. I've been having to confront um, some of the ways that I was conditioned in childhood not to bring my full self to the work, exactly. or even in exactly. the personal liberation, the path to personal yeah. liberation. So when I saw the title of your book, Love and Rage, mm-hmm. the, the Path to Liberation, um, I was like, wait a minute. Rage, though, how does rage get us there? You know, so many different teachings um, will weave love in as the way, as the answer, you know. But in what way, what role did rage play for you, either in those early stages of of your path or or even now? What what does rage have to do with it? Yeah, yeah. You know, and also what that comes up for me is like, what does love have to do with it? <laughs> you know, as well. But like, you know, I, I completely resonate, you know, with your experiences because, you know, growing up in church, growing up in the community, it was like there were expressions of who I was, which was so erased, particularly in church, you know. I think in church communities, it's like, there is a vibrant, active, queer community. Oh yeah, in church that is completely invisible, but it's a it's a play that we engage in. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a it's, it's it felt like a game. Oh yeah, I was that playing we were all that engaging game in. for sure. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, we were playing that game. Like we, everyone knew who everyone was. Mm-hmm. You know, but the game was okay. How can we just let them be? in the church and like stay as far away from naming Mm -hmm. who they were as possible, Mm -hmm. you know, because some of us felt like if we, if we could just avoid naming it, you know, then it would be safe for everyone to stay together because we were still, you know, my experience of, you know, the black church, particularly, it was like, this was still our refuge against systematic racism, Mm -hmm. against the, the, the brutality of whiteness around us. And this is where we retreated into. So we were trying to do everything that we could do to keep everyone in. Right. And maybe the consequence was, or one of the strategies was not naming, you know, the lives of certain groups within the community in order to avoid going through that really intense, you know, um, process of looking at the ways, Mm -hmm. you know, in which we were, struggling around the complexity of identity and sexuality, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, growing up, there was just so much anger uh, around everything, you know, and that fueled my, you know, my entrance into black political thought. I mean, I started reading when I was 12, like these really like the souls of black folks, right? I just started like getting into that. Um, and that, of course, went right into, like, radical thought, went right into Malcolm X and the Black Panthers, you know. And I needed somewhere to channel this anger, 
you know. And so one of the things that started happening for me, and it was something that was happening for most of my life, is that I began to understand how dangerous my anger was as a black person in the society. Yeah. And so my survival technique was to rechannel my anger and rage into passive aggressiveness. Oh, to hide it uh-huh. from the world. So I was I was the nice black guy. Like I got access to all the spaces. I was really smart growing up. So I was in like all these classes mm-hmm. where I was the only one, mm-hmm. you know? And so I was like people's only black friends. And I would smile and nod and go through these places, go through these spaces. And the, at the same time, I'm sitting there thinking in my mind, you know, about how, like, how much I don't like white people, (laughs) you know, and how much Uh I want to tell them, but I don't, how much I want to tell them I don't like them, but instead I'm just going to smile and laugh at their jokes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even when they hurt. Right. You know. Right. Um, But I was always looking for a way to undermine them. (laughs) <laughs> you know, um, and and so this, of course, continued. And this wasn't for all of my white friends. I had like really, really good white friends mm-hmm. who were really like in the work, doing the work, trying to deconstruct the stuff and disrupt racism and white supremacy. You know, so this is not about all of my friends. But as I got older, particularly when I landed in Boston, was living in community. You know, the elders of the community started sitting down with me, and they were like, "You know, you're just really pissed off." Oh, they could see it. Yeah, they can see it really easy. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I'm not pissed off. Like, and how could you see that? Because mm-hmm. I'm a professional at hiding this. And and to the point where you were even in denial. Yeah, I was like. in denial. Yeah. I couldn't, I had lost it. Yeah. I had lost connection to that mm. energy. It was so deeply buried, you know? And when I started really getting serious, you know, around meditation, it's just, I just started unpacking it. Yeah. I was like, oh, like, this is nothing but brokenheartedness I was, around, you know. Um, that makes me curious. Like, when can you remember the moment or a moment when you gave yourself permission to be angry or, or, or yeah. enraged? Can you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I remember it very clearly. Um I remember this moment. So when I went off into my three-year retreat, you know, to train to be a teacher, I had this moment in retreat, you know, where something had happened, you know, um, and I I think um, I'd asked for something to be done and it wasn't done. And when I found out it wasn't done, I had this experience in this moment of being super triggered. You know, and I remember it was as it was if I I don't know I went I don't know it, it, it's hard to explain but like my anger like started moving through my experience in a way that I'd never seen before. You know, it was if like I was watching a movie or experiencing a movie rather. Mm-hmm. You know, and I just felt the energy of anger moving through my experience first as a physical sensation, mm-hmm. and then how it became an emotion as my mind labeled what that experience was. And in that moment, I like realized what anger was. Mm. You know, and then I was like, okay, and this is how I begin to work with it. Like, this is how I actually begin to trigger. I can see what it is now. Yeah. And then I had agency. 
to really start experimenting with it. Will you, you just, know, like this? Mm? Sorry to, to interrupt. Um, mm-hmm. Will you describe a little bit of what it was that you were seeing and feeling? Mm-hmm. It, like mm-hmm. you say you knew what it was at that moment. Yeah. Can you say a little yeah. bit more about what it was? Yeah. yeah, at the at the very beginning, it was like, for me, it was like lightning moving from the bottom of my body up. So it was like this electric current. Hmm of energy i never experienced that before you know so that electric current of energy was moving up right and i couldn't do anything you know and i think looking back it just happened so quickly that i couldn't react to it i couldn't like frame it it was just it started before i was ready Uh. (laughs) (laughs) you know Uh to you know so it just it was like electric and i saw it as electric Mm. i saw it as a lightning moving up my body, Mm. you know, almost moving up my spine in a way, Mm. you know? And then my mind was like, what is that? Oh, it must be anger, you know? And I was like, oh, this is how that happens. This is how this whole process happens, but I've never been aware enough Mm -hmm. to see this, you know? And then what did you do with it? Once it rose up and you knew what it was, then what? It was like, it was like, it felt like finding out this new, really amazing piece of information. And you're like, oh my God, my life is going to be so different. I just kind of stood there Mm. and just kind of like really felt everything. I was like, what was that? Mm. You know, it was like anger had told me its secret. Mm. It was almost like the emperor had no more clothes. Like the emperor has no clothes anymore. I was like, oh, that's what you are. And I just kind of stepped into this whole brand new space of like working with anger. Like I could see, I could, after that moment, I could see the physical components of anger for the first time for me and my body. Yeah. You know, so I knew when I was angry, even when my mind wasn't labeling the sensations as anger. Yep. I can remember that's it's it's a beautiful way that you tell that story. Like mm-hmm. it's it's it it does sound like this um intriguing discovery that was beautiful and you describing it as electric like it it's alluring <laughs> um in this way mm-hmm. that you describe it and I can recall uh, I went to an acting school after high school. And um, I took some classes where, like, we were given permission to, like, bring our anger to the surface. And I remember us all in that class actually really struggling um, to do it. And we would have to, like, take a bat and smash (laughs) things. Um, And for a while, that was the way that I would try to get my anger out. Um, It was, like, throw something or... Um, and, the, it, and it was this destructive thing. And I had already been socialized to be afraid of anger, my own anger, but also because of my environment, like also being black in many white spaces, I was intimidating if I was ever direct or upset or angry. Then I became the intimidating one. So I also like rep- suppressed a lot of those emotions in order, like you said, to be nice, um, be liked, belong. And so I was both like trying to grapple with my anger, like get it out because I was so angry. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, personally, for me, my father had gone to prison, and I had a lot of anger around that that I was trying to work through. But I was I was terrified because everything in my environment, beyond my immediate environment, told me that black was not allowed to be angry. Black and angry meant dangerous. And black and angry or black and enraged could actually bring harm upon me. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, how do you navigate that? Like where there's the beauty of it, the the electric current of it, and then there's mm-hmm. the way in which your environment perceives that. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you navigate being black and, and angry? Yeah. I, you know, I had to own it. You know, I had to look at the ways in which I was told not to be angry by the world. You know, on one hand, I was told not to be angry because it would it put me in danger because there were there were consequences for black anger. You know, on the other hand, you know, I was told not to be angry because it was it kept me from accessing a really important experience to disrupt systems of violence around me, systems of marginalization and oppression, you know? And so my work was just saying, you know what? I am going to own anger. And my one of my first practices was just saying, you know, I am angry. Mm. You know, I am angry. I am pissed off. I am enraged. And this is why, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And owning that, you know? Because it helped me to actually come into relationship with something that I had been habitually habitually avoiding my whole life, mm-hmm. you know. And so that that was really important. And then I had to look at the ways in which um, my anger was a mirror for folks, particularly white folks, you know. And I started exploring the ways in which I had to challenge white folks to do their work when they encountered my anger Hmm. instead of like taking on their insecurity or the ways in which they were blaming me Mm -hmm. for something i had to turn that back around and say no actually my anger is your mirror you know if you're interested in doing the work you have to be interested in this you have to be interested in my anger Mm -hmm. you know if you're not interested then we're not in relationship you know, you know, and then, yeah, you move through these situations where, you know, maybe the consequence in certain situations around anger is that you get ignored or you get, you know, silenced or gaslit. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had to I had to own that, you know, and I had to say, you know what, this has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you, you know, and your lack of capacity mm-hmm. to be with what my anger is showing you about your role, you know, and why I'm angry, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it, it was really about protecting my energy. I had to stop taking on other people's work, you know, around me, particularly white folks work. Right. You know? And so when I started doing all of that, I started experiencing a lot of space to, to, to actually look beneath the anger and beneath the anger for me was the heartbrokenness. Mm. you know, this deep disappointments, you know, Mm -hmm. and I knew that my anger after a while was only arising to take care of me, to to actually point me back to the woundedness in order to take care of it, Mm. you know. And once I started really learning how to do the the work of care for my woundedness, 
then the energy of anger actually became something I had agency over, you know? Whereas I could start channeling anger in a way that, like, that was so subversive. You know, anger can be cha- anger can be channeled when we have agency over. It. We can be we can channel we can channel it into ways that are beneficial for ourselves and for others. Uh-huh. You know that people won't even know the label as anger uh-huh. anymore. You know, it just becomes direct. It becomes clear. Mm. It becomes pointed. Can you give me an example you know? of a way that you do that now? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, like all the like all the time, like I, you know, on particularly on social media, like when I'm responding to something is actually coming from anger, my anger, because I'm not just habitually responding to it anymore. I'm actually riding that energy, you know, and like riding that energy into developing a lot of clarity, you know, Mm -hmm. and that 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 work feels very dynamic for me. It's like, I don't know, it's like riding um it's like riding that that electric wave again. You know, and like and it's about giving that electricity lots of space and it's also staying in awareness around that electricity. So when I slip out of awareness, then that's where I start just habitually reacting to the anger mm-hmm. in a way that may create harm for myself and others. Yeah. You know, but the the energy, when I ride the energy, it helps me to move through fear. It helps me to move through the ways in which people um, may distract me from articulating what's true for me in the moment. You know, it just, it catapults me through all these insecurities into my truth. Hmm. Hmm. And that truth telling is about me. It's about me. Yeah expressing and articulating what's up for me in the moment it's not about me trying to get back at you you know or trying to like hurt people it's about me saying that i've been hurt and it's about me trying to actually reduce harm in the situation you know that i'm responding to yeah that that brings me to this moment that we're in um because this this conversation this book is so timely we're having we're recording this just a couple of days after the murder of George Floyd and there are lots of ways in which our people are enraged and in the streets and protesting and rioting and all of those i see as ways of expressing that hurt and that rage that we've been talking about and just coming back to um, kind of the ways that it shows up, you're, you're talking about the spaciousness around it. It, it. it That just seems so hard in these like acute moments as well. Like mm-hmm. it, it seems like sometimes we just become the lightning. And in a way we are the like collective lightning bolt striking in that moment to be a mirror. And it's so obvious for me, from my own perspective, like why we need to be angry out loud and in public. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm curious for you, what mm-hmm. what role you see anger and rage playing in our movements and why why we must 
make space for it or channel it or mm-hmm. yeah say say more about your thoughts on its role in social liberation yeah. anger and rage are critical in social liberation they they possess anger and rage possess an energy that again catapults us through the fear through the anxiety through the worry through you know the impacts of marginalization and oppression and silence and isolation it's the energy that takes us through all of that into truth and clarity but it's also a volatile energy you know Mm -hmm. so we have to so in my practice it's like i yes rage and anger i rely on it to show me what's up and i rely on it to take to offer me this kind of energy this audacity you know to move through things but it's the love that steers the direction of that energy you know it's the love that that watches out for the anger Hmm. you know as we're moving through it and in it and around it you know anger out loud is important you know um but when we bring our love in to hold the space for the anger as we're moving through anger then that's when we begin to see real change you know because that truth is just living out loud you know for us and you know what we're seeing you know in um minneapolis you know is this like the uprising of this anger you know, which we've seen in Ferguson, we saw in Baltimore, we've seen through, you know, mm-hmm. how, you know, American history, mm-hmm. particularly, you know, from, from black folks in our organizing. Um, and it's, the anger is telling us a truth right now, you know, but unfortunately, we live in a social context where people aren't interested in that truth. Right. So that's labeled as a threat, mm-hmm. you know. Um, it has to be both love and rage together for real change to really happen. You know, you also have to understand too that like what we experience when we're embodying this this rage and this anger and we're expressing it, we're tying, we're, we're stepping into this kind of trans-historical rage as well. We're stepping into this current of rage that our ancestors are also transmitting to us as well, because they're still enraged. Uh-huh. They're still angry, you know, and we're also, we're so we're embodying their rage and we're embodying the rage of this life as well, you know, but we're also embodying the trauma as well, but we're also embodying the love and the joy. And we have to touch into all of that, those trans-historical experiences right now. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a balance there. It's not just the rage, but it's also the love that's being transmitted through our ancestry. And we have to hold on to both in order to move through the world right now. You know, without love, the expression of anger will be um, will be an experience of depletion. Hmm. You know, um, and it will turn into burnout. It will turn into, you know deeper experiences of trauma Mm. you know and numbness and apathy and shutting down and despair right that's the that that's that's the the consequence of anger and rage right it's like it 
takes a lot of energy. That energy isn't being created. It's energy that's being expressed mm -hmm. from our systems. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that energy is being taken from somewhere else to fuel this experience. And we have to understand that. This is why love is so important. Love balances all of this out. Love will say, okay, we have to like do care now. We have to, we have to, you know, go through, you know, some type of self-care, you know, self-preservation work in order to feel restored, you know, and we just can't always be on the, you know, the, the level or the expression of anger all the time because that's going to have consequences. Mm -hmm. And how do you, you do that? We're kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit between yeah. mm -hmm. the, the collective level, the, the social liberation and, and the personal mm -hmm. level. And I'm curious, a lot of what the, the practices that I've read in your book mm -hmm. um, are, are solo practices. Mm -hmm. yep. And I'm just curious if you can speak a little bit to the ways in which you create a space of love around your anger. Or in a way, I think I'm actually asking, like, how do you... How do you get your body to a place where it can continue channeling this anger without burning out? What is it that you yeah. do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, you know, I really give it my anger lots of space. You know, um, the spaciousness is the key. That's the key to many of the practices in the book. It's like we're not trying to shut down and contract around the anger. We're trying to give it a wide open space for it to express itself, you know? And the second thing I do is I connect to my benefactors. You know, in the book, for me, it's really about also getting people to understand that, like, you have to take refuge in something. Like, I need my teachers, my ancestors, the earth, right? You know, I, I need, you know, um, community. Mm-hmm to do this work, you know, so I'm always calling those, those sources, sources of refuge into my practice to hold me, you know, as well. Um, and it's also about learning how to love your anger as well. And so when I say we have to use our love to hold the anger, that's one kind of expression of love. But when I say you have to love your anger, for me, it's like I have to accept my anger. So when I say love, I mean acceptance. I have to deeply accept that this anger is happening. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's something that is restorative for me. You know, um, most of us go through life not really accepting life. You know, everything has to be accepted in order to really achieve liberation. Mm. You know, and, and usually what I say, I don't even use the word acceptance, I use love. Everything must be loved, you know, which means that everything must be accepted. Because we have to be in relationship with reality as it is, not be in relationship with our anxiety around reality or worry about reality or our resistance to reality. We need to touch into reality itself for us to actually start doing things to change the nature of reality for us. When I hear the word acceptance and love what is, mm -hmm. uh, because of my own meditative practice, mm -hmm. I, I have an orientation to that that feels like it's just clearly being, 
being with whatever is. But I know that sometimes I can also associate like passivity with acceptance Mm -hmm. or um, content or even not totally apathetic, but disengagement, detachment. And that feels like the opposite of the path to social liberation. <laughs> you know, that yeah. feels like the opposite mm-hmm. of what, what all of our movements are about. So how, mm-hmm. how do you describe acceptance and loving what is in a way that mm-hmm. makes our, our movement work still make sense? Like yeah. where we get out of the, maybe the duality of that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I talk about acceptance, I never talk about it outside of action. So when I say, I'm only trying to accept it because I need to do something about it. Mm. So both of those have to be together for me. You know, yeah, and I think that when we're taking these practices, particularly as they've been channeled through like this kind of white Western lens, Mm -hmm. that acceptance is really about passivity. It's about just like, you know, it's kind of apathy. Right. You know, but for me, I'm only accepting again um, and being with something because I need to figure out how to change it, you know. So when I talk about loving, you know, racism, I'm not saying that, like, I'm trying to celebrate racism. I'm trying to admit that this is actually happening because I need to get into it Mm. and disrupt it. You know, if I'm not touching into the actual reality of something, then I'm just kind of rustling around with, like, my emotional reaction to the thing itself, not the thing itself, mm. you know? So like we talk about, let's using racism again, it's like, oh, I, I have a heartbrokenness around racism. That heartbrokenness also houses my anger, my rage, my disappointment, my despair, all of that. I'm not touching into the reality of racism yet until I actually move through that brokenheartedness to, t- to accept that this system of of racial caste is actually happening Mm -hmm. you know and my heartbreak doesn't go away my heartbreak is still there but i have accepted something you know and then that acceptance helps me to hold space for everything that arises around that yeah you know so many of us just kind of walk around and we just refuse to admit you know um to ourselves that like yeah something's actually happening Mm mm-hmm you know, there's something really, you know, really, you know, violent, something that's really, like, harmful that's happening, you know, and I have to accept that, you know, people think that if you accept it, that you make it real, it's already real. It's already real. It's already real, but you need to admit that it's real, and then you touch into the ground, and you're like, okay, now I'm able to actually get my feet on the ground and start walking on this. To figure out what to do mm-hmm. you know it's like looking up at the moon looking up at the moon isn't the same thing as walking on the moon so if i want to walk on the moon i need to make a journey to touch the surface of that moon mm. in order to be on the moon and that's when i'm like okay this is what the moon is this is very different than being thousands and thousands of miles away on Earth looking up at the moon. Mm. And many of us are thousands of miles away from the reality of racism, for instance. Mm. You know, so racism is just this thing that we think we know. We, we, we think we know what it is, but we haven't touched into the reality of racism. When you touch into the reality of racism, racism gets real complex. 
you know, it, it racism becomes about suffering and our relationship to suffering and what some of us are doing to be in a relationship or not being in relationship to this kind of suffering that we're all moving through. Huh. And that is going to, to change your relationship to the system of racism when you see that there are just people hurting who are just making really bad decisions and how they're choosing to be in relationship to that hurt. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. racism becomes human. Mm-hmm. It becomes, it's no longer this evil thing, you know, but it becomes just about people struggling to be happy and to be free from suffering, but making the wrong choices and how those wrong choices create harm and suffering for other folks, including themselves. Yeah. There's a teacher uh, of mine, um, Joanna Macy, and she said uh, once, you've got to get close enough to the pain to touch it in order to heal. And I heard that and I was like, yeah, I mean, but you must not have known I was born in the pain. So why do I want to get any close? Like, why would I want to feel it anymore? Why would I want Mm -hmm. to be with that suffering that's underneath the the anger any more than I already am. Yeah. Why would I why would yeah. I want to be in any more pain than I already am? So when you when you were describing like the the layer beneath the anger and the heartbreak that's there, I it, that feels like the thing that so many of us are doing our damnness to avoid as much as possible is pain like it's it's what most of our addictions are driven by is the avoidance of pain so how do we why 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 do why should we go there um especially for those of us who feel like we're already always there um and what what's the wisdom in that well well the thing is many of us may be born into pain but we haven't realized that our work with pain is to consume it, not to be consumed by it. Mm. So when we talk about, oh, you know, why should I be deeper in my pain? You know, we're actually trying to do the opposite. We're not trying to get deeper into the pain. I'm trying to consume the pain, you know? And so I consume the pain through spaciousness, through understanding the, the nature of pain itself. And I understand that through my meditation practice, right? When I'm leaning into my pain, I'm actually trying to get a closer look into it because I'm trying to see what it actually is. Like pain, like any other experience, is a composite experience. There are many micro sub experiences that come together. You know, so when we get closer, we have to see all these little pieces coming together. And this when that's when we start disrupting pain. It's when we start untying and disrupting these little bitty pieces that are coming together. Yeah. You know, our pain, our heartbrokenness isn't the solid thing. Uh. It's like, you know, I think about those pictures, you know, from far away, you know, these huge pictures that look like one image. But when you get closer, you see there's just thousands mm-hmm. of little pictures, mm-hmm. which I think is like amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's like magic, you know. But you get closer, it's like, oh, my God, they're just like these little tiny photographs of other scenes yeah. that come together create a big scene that's what moving into our pain is like we have to get close enough to see that there're just these narratives 
that create this big thing. But I can't see that when I'm so far away from it or when I'm afraid of it, mm. you know? And then when I get really close to my pain like that and see the things, I'm like, okay, I can take care of that. Like that thing, I can, I can look at that thing and get rid of that or consume that, you know, or heal this, you know? And bit by bit, the pain begins to change when we unravel it bit by bit, you mm-hmm. know? Um, but I want us, I want marginalized people, oppressed people to have agency. Mm-hmm over the pain, right? You know, we may be born into these systems of oppression, but that doesn't mean that like these systems of oppression have to continually consume our minds. You know, like we may be deeply restricted about our mobility in the world and like the ways in which we have access to resources, but the the agency that these systems of oppression have over our mind is something that I consent to. Mm. You know, and I can unconsent <laughs> to it, mm-hmm. you know. I can start disrupting that through the work of, like, embracing both love and rage, you know, together. Mm-hmm. Love begins to disrupt the ways in which I unconsciously consent to this kind of oppression. And then the love holds everything so I don't feel as if I'm being re-traumatized over and over again that there's a the love is a sense is the, the the love is like the bodyguard actually for for the anger mm. the, the the love takes care of the anger keeps it from getting super out of control and super depleting mm-hmm. for our work mm. and our organizing and our movements you know that is that's the thing about what i'm trying to do and what i've done in my practice is that like i've had to consume the trauma and the pain and the heartbrokenness yes you know um, I'm not afraid of it, you know, anymore because there's so much space that's arisen for me because of my practice around these experiences. Yeah. You know, so I can move out into the world and it's like, I don't feel as if I'm being consumed by racism or, you know, whatever it is. Hmm. I feel like I'm learning how to consume it. Hmm. Well, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about your practice because I want yeah. to shift uh toward consuming the pain rather than letting it consume me. I, I really appreciated you framing it that way. And I know in the book, there are a lot of um, practices that you offer for folks to follow. Um, uh, I really appreciated the uh, refuge. You, you mentioned it earlier, and in the book, there's practices around taking refuge. What's the practice? Can you just share some of the core practices that you find yourself coming back to again and again that allow you to create um, spaciousness for yourself, for your age. Yeah. I think one of the main practices is remembering the earth. You know, touching into the earth and understanding that the earth is always holding me. You know, the times where I feel isolated, alone, or unloved, those are just experiences, those are just illusions, you know? So when I get lost in that illusion, I know that I have to at least turn my attention back to the earth and lie on the earth, on the ground, on the floor, wherever it may be, mm-hmm. and just allow myself to be held by the earth. Like we need to, we have to, we, we need to experience being held by something, mm. you know, um, you know, and I experience being held by my teachers, right? Taking refuge in my teachers or in my lineage are and silence is a source of refuge for me you know uh, my ancestors are huge for me you know like developing a relationship with my ancestors and having that connection 
where like they they come and hold me, they come and sit with me. You know, that's an incredible source of refuge for me. And community, like finding our community, finding our folks, you know, and that's what I'm really, I'm really committed to that for folks, you know, like we have to find our communities, you know, um, to fall back into, you know, we need to, to, to cultivate communities of authentic care for one another. You know, and sometimes being in particularly activist communities or even like, you know, QT BIPOC communities, it's like our trauma is so present, you know, and we weaponize our trauma against each other, yeah. you know, and the, and the space no longer feels safe for us. We, we go to the spaces in the communities to be taken care of and we, we get the opposites. Yeah. We get hurt more. You know, so I just get tired of the drama and the meanness and everything that we experience, you know, and we and that's because we're not committed to an ethic of care for one another, mm. you know, um, of, of just really doing, you know, this work of like, what are our refuge? You know, what, what do we take refuge in? Can we how can we hold each other, you know, like authentically? Um, you know, how do we do this work of, like, restorative care, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, and so all that, all these sources of refuge are really important. I have a practice called the Seven Homecomings in the book, which um, has been really important for a lot of folks who experience marginalization and oppression, right? You know, we, we need to consciously, every day, all the time, call in our benefactors, our sources of refuge. Yes. To be with us. It's so easy to feel alone. That's right. You know, and that's where the violence emerges from. It's from that sense of isolation. Hmm. You know, and even now, like, as we're, like, in this period of of, um, pandemic and quarantine, and, you know, it's, you know, of course, it's changing now a little bit, but we're still feeling separate from one another, you know, and we have to, we have to do this work to to feel cared for. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm I, I'm a tantric. I come from tantric traditions, and, and so what is like that? deities. So tantra, so tantra is a system of you know I would say liberation that you know comes out of Southeast Asian practices and cultures, right? And it's about deities and rituals and mantras and energy and yoga. You know, um, it's about countercultural practices. You know, that are about, you know, transcending the ways in which culture and society prevents us from achieving liberation, you know, and just like cutting through that and getting to the source, getting to the nature of reality, getting to getting to the nature of the deity of the mother of God, you know, through these really extraordinary practices. So that's what I mean by Tantra. I'm a Tantric teacher and those practices deeply inform me. So deities for me are really important. You know, um, and I and I'm in community with with folks, particularly in in the diaspora, who are practicing. You know, so many of our diasporic, you know, religions, you know, and and practices. And it's like, I think it's so important because I think mainstream Christianity has been a tool to suppress, you know, the the power and imagination um, of you know African diasporic people. Mm-hmm. You know, and so for me, it's like, and for for me and my friends and colleagues, it's like, yeah, we, we're returning to these practices, these religions and paths, 
you know, that about are about really just like connecting to these experiences of energy that are so vibrant around us. Yes. Yeah. You know. Wow. I've really been enjoying this conversation with you. I, the whole time I'm just like feeling all kinds of things move through my body and yeah. and ultimately just feeling compelled to in a way remember what my body knows is true. Yes. Um and I just thank you. I thank you for that. And thank you for the work that you've been doing to bring this to us all through your book. Um, I know you're going to actually be offering a practice from the book that folks can um, listen to next week. Yes. And I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about the practice that you're going to offer. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this practice is really something that I use every day to create a lot of spaciousness around some difficult emotions that come up for me, you know? Um, and so this is something that I think you can just kind of add into your toolbox of practices around resiliency mm. right now. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. And for those of you who are listening and are ready to get your copy of Love and Rage, The Path to Liberation Through Anger, and read along in community with us, as well as join us for the live discussion with Lama Rod at the end of the summer, please go to irresistible.org slash book club to learn more and join. I um, I honestly, I can't say enough how powerful this conversation is for me, like as a queer, black, trans body, um, connecting with another queer, black body on this topic, uh, considering some shared backgrounds um, in the church and also in, in just in community, it has it has felt like more than resonance. It has felt like really a remembering. And I, I deeply thank you for the path that you have chosen and the practices that keep you moving forward. And I will be um, holding a space for you in my prayer and altar in this time as we are um, figuring out how to continue channeling the rage toward our liberation, toward our, toward our freedom, and learning how to, to build the resilience, the love, the space that you've been talking about. You'll, you'll definitely be holding a place um, in, in my path from here on out. So Thank you so much, Lamarad, and thank you to everyone who has been listening with us today. Thank you so much. A huge thank you to Lamarad Owens for sharing with us. Check out our vast library of conversations and practices for collective healing and social change. It's on our website. You can find the whole resource library for social just responses to COVID-19. While you're on irresistible.org, join our email list to stay in the know. We also want to just say thank you to some of our folks. Thank you to Zach Meyer for sound design and Allison Thompson for social media. Irresistible Podcast is supported by Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Please check them out, learn more at calliopeia.org. And next up, 
we're launching our series about navigating conflict and tension in our movements. We'll be diving into deep conversations with leaders and organizations about how generative conflict has shaped their lives and work and sharing conflict practices. This will be over the next couple of months. So we're excited to share this with you and hear from you soon.